How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you're listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I got my second vaccine shot the other day, which I'm very excited about, but I'll admit I'm still feeling a little bit fuzzy-headed. So, for the rest of this intro, I'm going to turn things over to my good friend, 2009 film noir detective, Chase Drakington. Chase, why don't you tell us about one of your favorite cases? Thanks, Hub. It all started on a rainy Monday morning. I was feeling lower than the ratings to the final season of Heroes. That's when she walked into my office. One look at her baby blues, and my resistance collapsed like the housing market. If this dame wasn't on the level, I'd be in more trouble than Kanye West backstage at a Taylor Swift concert. But I could tell just by looking at her that she was like the film's street fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li. Guileless. At least that's what I thought. But first impressions can be as unreliable as Kevin Garnett's knees in the postseason. Well, thanks so much for sharing that with us, Chase Drakington. You certainly are a film noir detective from 2009. Now, let's talk about a comic book or something, shall we? Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Lucas Bickford. Hooray, huzzah, grab a can of beans. There are now over 300, tighten up the D's. That's a lot of wapoots and heaps of Sorcerer Supreme. So let's give a big hoot for the defenders and the teens. Hard work and Hub and Corey should get a bump on their fist to celebrate this landmark with a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Lucas. Defenders, number 98. August, 1981. The Hand Closes. Written by J.M. DeMattis, drawn by Don Perlin, inked by Joe Sinnott and Sal Trapini, lettered by Jim Novak, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup Doctor Strange, Valkyrie, Hellcat, Devil Slayer, Son of Satan, Gargoyle, Nighthawk, Wong, Clea, and Man-Thing. And Captain America, Iron Man, The Beast, and Wonder Man. And the Incredible Hulk, Namor the Submariner, and the Silver Surfer. That's a lot of superheroes. Previously in The Defenders. A sextet of minor demons figured out that if they all moved in together and lived as finger puppets protruding from the palm of an enormous demonic hand, they would become far more powerful and would probably be strong enough to take over the world. This unconventional living arrangement seemed to have the desired effect, and the demonic digits soon determined that the only group who might manage to oppose them was the Defenders. The malevolent meat hook set its collective sights on our titular non-team, but devil-dadded demonologist Damon Hellstrom, aka Son of Satan, caught wind of the hand's scheme and hurried to warn the defenders that they were in danger. Then he forgot. Whoops! 
The perfidiously parented professor got too distracted helping our heroes thwart two unrelated cosmic menaces to tell them about the six-fingered hand, and by the time he remembered, the hand had already begun a two-pronged attack on a pair of our protagonists. First, the malicious metacopus zapped Kyle Richmond, aka Nighthawk, with a mystical attack which left the affluent Davian aficionado paralyzed from the neck down during daylight hours. Next, one of the hand's fiendish fingers, a demon named Avarish, had a hideous gargoyle kidnap Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat, and carry her off to the small town of Christianboro, Virginia, where he performed a ritual allowing Avarish to possess the cat-costumed crime fighter and take over her soul. Oh no! When Valkyrie, Doctor Strange, and Son of Satan mounted a rescue attempt, the newly demonic Hellcat beat the shit out of her fellow defenders, until Valkyrie friendshipped her back to normal. Patsy was stoked to be feeling like herself again, but during her possession she had learned that prior to her death, her recently deceased mother had attempted to sell Patsy's soul to the demons of the hand in exchange for prolonging her life. Bummer! Patsy and her pals confronted the gargoyle who had abducted her, and the misshapen malefactor turned out to be Isaac Christians, a local octogenarian dabbler in the dark arts who had agreed to aid Avarish in exchange for economic incentives for his beloved hometown. Avarish had transformed his elderly employee into a gargoyle so that he might better carry out his dark master's bidding, but the defeat of his peccable patron meant that Isaac was now trapped in this fearsomely flappy form indefinitely. The defenders decided that while they didn't condone the kidnapping, attempted murders, and demonic rituals Ike had perpetrated per se, at least it had been for a good cause. So when Isaac asked if he could join the team to try to make amends for his demonic whoopsies, they welcomed him into the fold. Our heroes went on to further demonstrate their questionable taste in allies by joining forces with literal Dracula and helping the evil lord of the vampires defeat the demon Puishant, a member of the hand who had been interfering in the surprisingly factionalized world of vampire politics. As if there were another kind of politics, am I right? The gang next headed to Detroit where they teamed up with Ghost Rider to battle the demon Fashima. The defenders once again emerged victorious over their infernal opponent, but after the battle, Patsy suffered from an unsettling relapse of being possessed. Steve managed to excise the remnant of Avarish which had been lingering in Patsy's soul, but while he was in there, the supercilious sorceress saw something that gave him cause for concern. The mustachioed mage had little time to dwell on his unsettling soul-side sightseeing, because no sooner was the second exorcism of Avarish completed than the defenders were approached by their old pal, Eric Simon Payne, a.k.a. Devil Slayer. Eric was a Vietnam veteran who, after his stint in the service, got tricked into joining an evil occult organization whose dogma was loosely based on Blue Oyster cult lyrics. After learning the true nature of the group he had signed up with, Eric left the cult and used the tools they had bestowed upon him to fight evil. Chief amongst these tools was his Shadow Cloak, which allowed him to teleport and from which he could retrieve any weapon. During Eric's first team up with the Defenders, Patsy had acquired a similar Shadow Cloak, but sadly it had gotten lost in the rubble when Gargoyle destroyed her home in the course of kidnapping her. After using his cloak to teleport into the middle of the gang's post-exorcism debriefing, Eric informed the Defenders that he needed their help. His ex-wife Cory, no relation, had moved to a small enclave in the desert near Jerusalem and joined a cult that worshipped a man named David Kessler, who claimed to be the Messiah. Eric was pretty sure David was in league with the Six-Fingered Hand. 
Steve teleported everyone to the oasis Dave and his pals were hanging out at and disguised them all as tourists. Soon after they arrived at their destination, Kessler attempted to prove his messianic bona fides by healing Kyle's paralysis. To everyone's amazement, the healing seemed to work. After his seemingly miraculous recovery, Kyle was convinced that Dave was on the up and up, but his non-teammates remained skeptical. Things remained cordial until David used his allegedly holy powers to dispel the Defender's disguises, at which point Damon and Ike's unconventional appearances led Kessler and his followers to conclude that the Defenders were the ones in league with demons. David summoned a host of angels to attack the heroes, and a desert Donnybrook erupted. Before long, David noticed that his angels were attacking with a vigor that threatened to endanger his congregation and ordered them to cease their onslaught. When the angels declined to obey, the would-be messiah became confused. Steve cast a spell which forced the ersatz angels to show their true nature, revealing that the supposedly holy host was in fact a group of goofy-ass minor demons, one of whom was a dick-nosed doofus who appeared to be wielding a dildo and taking a shit. Dave was understandably aghast at this revelation. It turned out that Hippocri, yet another demonic member of the Six-Fingered Hand, had duped David into thinking that he was the Messiah in hopes that he would amass followers which the Hand could use as currency in their inscrutable soul-based economy. Once Steve had ruined this plan by wising up their rube of a chosen one, Hippocri took over David's body and used it to attack his followers. Devil Slayer intervened, and in a last act of defiance, David Kessler wrested control of his body from its demonic intruder just long enough to impale himself on Eric's sword in a final act of self-sacrifice. With the death of his host body, Hippocrates was left with no choice but to flee back to his home dimension, taking his minions, dick-nosed and otherwise, along with him. Gadzooks! Will the results of Kyle's miraculous faith healing remain now that the perpetrator of that healing has lost both his faith and his life? Where is the rip in reality that allows the six-fingered hand to enter our dimension? And now that Hippocrates' dick-nosed hench demon has fled, what phallus-faced foe will attack the defenders next? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Nope. Florida, of course, and enter Man-Thing. It's a quiet morning in the Sanctum Sanctimonious. Wong and Clea are upstairs meditating when the phone rings. Clea pretends not to notice it and keeps meditating until Wong gets up and answers. He starts to tell whoever it is that Steve's busy demon hunting, but before he finishes the sentence, the defenders all teleport into the middle of the room. Nonplussed, Wong hands the phone to Steve. The call is coming from an Avengers Quinjet, which is hovering over a swamp in Florida. Captain America's a little concerned, because where there was once a bustling town called Citrusville, there is now a gaping chasm in the shape of a six-fingered hand. Huh. Turns out a little while ago, Steve, that's Doctor Strange Steve, not Captain America Steve, called all the major super teams and told them to keep an eye out for anything weird that seemed like it might be six-fingered hand-related. Cap reckons this qualifies. I reckon he's probably right. Steve tells the other Steve that he and the rest of his non-team will be arriving shortly. He hangs up and fills the rest of the defenders in on what he's just learned and asks if they're ready to get going. 
Eric's a little cranky because his ex-wife decided she'd rather wander around in the desert with her demonically duped cult pals than come home with him, but he agrees to go along with the group. The rest of the gang is readying themselves for the trip south when Kyle pipes up and announces that he's going to quit the team. Since Dave the Messiah died, Kyle went back to being paralyzed during the day and figures that might be too difficult for the rest of the defenders to schedule their crime fighting around. Also, he just remembered that he's supposed to be running a multi-million dollar corporation and figures he'd better get back to the more hands-on form of neglect that his shareholders have come to expect from him. The billionaire duel bird enthusiast bids a tearful farewell to his erstwhile non-teammates and has his newly hired nurse wheel him to his limousine. I think that brings the amount of times Kyle's quit the team up to at least three, which puts him in a tie with Steve. Good for him! I mean, he's still not putting up Hulk or Namor-type numbers, but three is respectable. Meanwhile, in Hellcat's hometown of Montclair, New Jersey, a trio of asshole kids is playing in the rubble that was once Patsy's home. The leader of these young rascals, a freckle-faced dipshit named Cliff, finds Patsy's abandoned shadow cloak and puts it on so that he can play Mandrake the Magician. The rest of his juvenile cohort are astonished when a few seconds after donning the garment, Cliff is replaced by a grinning lizard man. The lizard man says hello and laughs maniacally when the children flee in terror. Well, that's what you get for playing Mandrake, Cliff. Those King Features Syndicate heroes have always attracted the wrong element. Let that be a lesson to any kids out there who are tempted to cosplay as their idols Rex Morgan M.D. or Judge Parker. I'm not saying you'll necessarily get eaten by a lizard man, but you're probably going to get eaten by a lizard man. While poor Cliff is learning this lesson the hard way, Steve teleports the remaining defenders to the hand-shaped chasm formerly known as Citrusville, Florida. The gang exchanges pleasantries with Captain America, Wonder Man, the Beast, and Iron Man, after which Steve tells the Avengers to stay put while the defenders explore the area. When the superheroic search party reaches the edge of the conspicuous chasm, Hellcat starts acting weird. When devil slayers like Feels all shitty and evil around here. I don't like it. Patsy responds, I don't know. I think evil's kind of rad. Right, Damon? You're probably way into evil shit, huh? Son of Satan is like, Huh? What the fuck are you talking about? Evil blows! Patsy says, Oh, just you wait. You'll see. All flirty-like. Then she scratches the fuck out of his face with her clawed gloves. Damon is understandably upset by this. As the Satan-spawned superhero struggles to control his hereditary rage, Hellcat just laughs her ass off and mocks the irascible academic. After a few seconds, Patsy regains herself and apologizes. Then she turns to Doctor Strange and is like, What the fuck, Steve? I thought you guys booted that demon out of me. Like, twice. Steve is like, Yeah, me too. Anyway, looks like there's a little rip in the fabric of reality over there. Let's go poke at it and see what happens. Everyone agrees that that sounds like a great plan and prepares themselves to commence to poking. When a booming voice from behind them is like, Fuck all you guys! Did I say the voice came from behind them? It's actually more like behind and above. 
Because when the heroes turn around, they are alarmed to see a 40-foot-tall version of the shambling muck monster Man-Thing. Apart from being startling in and of itself, what makes the sight even more upsetting is that in addition to generally being about 32 feet shorter, Man-Thing usually can't talk. Steve is like, oh shit. As if to confirm the sorcerer's assessment of the situation, the creature is like, Yup, I'm the demon Unthink, with four ends, of the six-fingered hand. I found this indestructible compost heap wandering around the swamp, and figured I may as well use it to murder you all to death. For those of you unfamiliar with Man-Thing, his origin is as follows. A super smart scientist named Ted Salas went into the swamps of Florida to work on a secret formula. Then some bad guys decided they wanted the formula, so they murdered the scientist and dumped him in the swamp. Only the scientist had some of the formula with him, and as he was dying, the formula mixed with him and some swamp goo and turned him into a vaguely person-shaped vegetation monster. Wait, isn't that Swamp Thing? No. Swamp Thing was a scientist who went into the swamps of Louisiana to work on this formula before being murdered and turned into a vegetable monster. Man-Thing was Florida. Totally different. Also, Man-Thing has totally submerged all of his humanity and is an almost totally mindless creature who only reacts to the emotions of those around him. Most of the time. Also, his nose looks like a big floppy dong. Anyway, Man-Think slash Unthink with four ends starts whooping the shit out of all the defenders and shit-talking them as he does so. Well, almost all the defenders. Halfway through the fight, Patsy just kind of starts staring off into space and then wanders away. You guys, I think something might be up with Patsy. The rest of the gang struggles valiantly, but are obviously outmatched. In a last-ditch effort, Steve sends his astral form into Man-Thing's soul so that he can confront Unthink in there and hopefully unseat the demon from his host. At first, it doesn't go so great. As soon as Astral Steve pops into the swamp creature's soul, he's ambushed by Unthink in his true demonic form. Unthink has a trio of horns coming out of his head, but other than that, looks kind of like a regular muscly guy. Except that instead of a tummy, he just has a denuded spinal cord. It's not a great look. Regardless of his abdominal shortcomings, the demon just pummels the intangible shit out of Astral Steve. Then, when it looks like Unthink is about to turn Spectral Steve into a double ghost or whatever, a naked dude pops out of nowhere and starts wailing on the half-torsoed Hellspawn. Hooray! The naked dude in question turns out to be the scientist Ted Salas's long-suppressed psyche. As soon as Steve snuck into the much-maligned muck monster's soul, he started pumping cosmic energy into Salas so that the repressed consciousness of the unlucky chemist might reclaim his body and help him evict its unholy soul squatter. Which is just what Ted does. Seeing that he's doomed to fail against the combined might of Steve's sorcery and Ted's newfound willpower, Unthink flees Man-Thing's body, and with an oath of vengeance on his lips, retreats to whatever unknown realm the six-fingered hand calls home. Once the demon's gone, Steve is like, Well, Ted, let's see if we can use my magic and get your body back to being more human and less dick-nosed swamp monster, shall we? 
When Ted hears this proposal, he freaks out and is like, No way! You might fail! Better not to try! Just send me back to the oblivion of the depths of the mindless pile of compost subconscious where I was hanging out before all this, will ya? Steve agrees to do as Ted requests, and a few minutes later, the once again mindless Man-Thing ambles aimlessly back into the swamps. Bye, Man-Thing! The defenders take a second to recover from the ass-kicking they just suffered, then Steve and Damon turn to address the hole in reality that they had just found before they were ambushed. Damon is like, So we should probably seal that up before it eats the rest of Florida, right? Steve is like, Should we? The gang ponders that for a minute. Really, Steve? I mean, I get it, but not cool. Steve goes on, I just mean that this portal may be our chance to track the hand to the hidden extra-dimensional lair. I know it might be dangerous to not close it up, but it might be equally dangerous to allow these fiendish finger puppets to continue to plague humanity. They think it over for a minute, and one by one, the noble heroes silently reach the unanimous conclusion that the Sunshine State can go fuck itself. Together, the five defenders step through the portal. Notice how I just said five? Yeah, that's because in all of their soul-searching and courage-gathering, not one of these fucknuts noticed that Patsy isn't with them anymore. Gotta say, not feeling great about entrusting the continued existence of reality to a group of heroes who collectively are incapable of counting to six. Once the intrepid, if occasionally oblivious, adventurers step into the dimensional tear, shit gets real weird real fast. They hold hands as they tumble through a void, falling past strange planets and even stranger images. Eventually, Devil Slayer is like, Hey, my shadow cloak's gone. Also, didn't we used to have a patsy? Okay, I'm glad you finally noticed, but way to prioritize, Eric. Suddenly, a large ethereal hand appears in front of the confused quintet. It surprises none of them to note that the disembodied hand sports an extra digit. The hand beckons them to follow it, and for some reason, they figure that seems like a reasonable thing to do. The hand leads our heroes into a hellish realm of sweltering heat and fetid stench. Huh. I thought they left Florida. I kid. I've been to Florida exactly once. I was nine years old, and I thought it was nice. I'm sure there are good things about every state. Except Connecticut. When the hand finally dissipates, signaling that the defenders have arrived at their destination, our heroes are shocked at the sight that greets them. Seated uncomfortably on stone seats arranged in an amphitheater above them, sit the five demons of the hand they have defeated in battle. The sixth member of this Mephistophelian mitt stands in front of his comrades and introduces himself as Maya. Maya looks kind of like a caveman version of Gilbert Gottfried, only clad in furry underpants and with a prehensile tail. He greets his guests with mock hospitality. None of this is what shocks the defenders, though. They were more or less expecting something along these lines. Okay, maybe they didn't think the guy was going to look like Gilbert Gottfried, but they also didn't necessarily expect him not to look like Gilbert Gottfried. What does shock them, though, is that imprisoned in four domes of energy at the feet of the demons lie the prone bodies of the Hulk, Clea, Namor, and the Silver Surfer. To be concluded.
joining us once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hello. (laughs) Hey, it's going great. How are you? I'm doing okay. I totally thought you were going to follow that up with, oh, I didn't see you there. I, I don't know why I said hello that way. That was weird. I am sorry. That's okay. Other than saying hello, weird, how are you doing? Oh, fine, fine. Got a good start on a hazy IPA. It was delicious. Nice. I like a hazy IPA. Not a big IPA fan, but once it gets hazed out, mellows in a way that I'm okay with. Yeah, it's weird. Very drinkable despite its uh, heavy alcohol content. Hmm. I had a bit of a scare earlier today that I'm recovering from still. Oh, no. I was driving around doing errands, and I heard a weird noise come from the back of the car. It was like a rattling noise. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, shit, I can only think of two options here. Either there is a rattlesnake in the car, or Lisa has bought a rain stick. (laughs) And I was horrified and really hoped that it was a rattlesnake, because I don't want to get a divorce. (laughs) Right. Oh, man, that's so funny. I had a rain stick come up in conversation with tina just this week oh no did she want to get one no thankfully okay uh there was a strange noise and i was like ah and she's <laughs> like what was that i was like i don't know but it sounded like a rain stick and she's like <laughs> a what and then i explained it i think it says a great deal about the era of portland that we grew up in that both of us are more frightened of rain sticks than we are rattlesnakes <laughs> <laughs> well they were certainly more prevalent that's true Good news, though. Just a packet of kale seeds that was in the trunk. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. No, that's not divorce material. That's that's fine. No, no, no. And just to be clear, I would not actually get a divorce over a rain stick purchase, but it would necessitate a serious talk. And speaking of serious talks, you want to uh, talk about a comic book? Let's do it. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? Oh, man. This was pretty silly, but I had fun reading it. I may just be stuck on the cover. (laughs) Oh, really? I loved the cover. No, not stuck in a bad way, but stuck on like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a goofy ride, you know? Yeah, and I don't think it really disappointed. I mean, I don't know that it lived up to the cover. The cover is by a guy named Marshall Rogers, who I have heard a lot about, but haven't actually seen a ton of his work. He's probably best known for having a very influential run on Batman in Detective Comics in the 70s and I think early 80s. He brought a really noir look to it and is maybe better known for his design than his illustration. But from what I've seen, he's pretty great at both. I love this cover so much. And the little touches like the Defenders font for the logo, I kept kind of staring at it. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's almost psychotropic. Yeah, it looks like the letters are maybe cut out of a warped screen door, you know? Mm -hmm. It's got that kind of grid, almost pointillism, optical illusion thing going for it. And it's a different kind of optical illusion, but that's almost mirrored below in the giant man-thing eyeballs that have the spirals in them. It's just really cool looking. Yeah, It's definitely saying, all right, folks, this is going to get weird. And there's a little frog with a red top hat sitting on the top of the Defenders logo for no reason. You know, I did not notice that. (laughs) It's just like, here's a little Easter egg for you. 
Wow. He's grinning. I wonder if maybe because I stared so much at the warped screen door letters, it hypnotized me into being like, pay no attention to the frog in the top hat. He's running the show. The way that the defenders on the cover are depicted as they react to giant man things, eyeball laser beams or whatever, Mm -hmm. like their posture is really kind of funny. Like it's not anatomically wrong, I don't think, but the way that their bodies are like splayed and the arms are thrown akimbo, like it's it's just a a goofy look, you know. And it says, "Hey, all right, guys, you're in for some strangeness." And I think there definitely was some strangeness in this. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading this comic book. It kind of breezed by. I feel like a lot happened, but it was never really overwhelming to me. And then. Just a whole bunch of weirdness happened, too. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed it, too. And, and I appreciated its brevity after uh, reading the Titans annual. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the weird weirdness, I think, focused around the character Man-Thing, who gets taken over by a very distinctive-looking demon that is a member of the Six-Fingered Hand in this. How familiar were you with Man-Thing coming into this? Have we talked about him on this show before? Yeah, but like mostly as his name being the butt of jokes. Mm. Um, Refresh my memory. I can't remember if the chronology came up. It really seems like a Swamp Thing ripoff. Okay, I'm actually glad you brought that up. It is complicated as fuck. Short answer is he is not a Swamp Thing ripoff. Swamp Thing arguably might be a Man-Thing ripoff but they're both ripped off of something else, which is a ripoff of something else. Whoa. So I'll walk you through the chronology <laughs> as quick as I can. All right. Man-Thing first debuted in a comic book called Savage Tales Number 1. It was a black and white comic book. The character was workshopped very briefly by Stan Lee and Roy Thomas and then given to Jerry Conway to write. Two months later, Swamp Thing shows up for the first time in a comic book called House of Secrets number 92. That's in July of 1971. The Man-Thing was May 1971. Now, two months isn't really long enough to put out a whole comic book, so clearly Swamp Thing was in the works before the publication date of Man-Thing. Mm. So it couldn't completely be a ripoff of that. But here's where it gets weirder. I told you Jerry Conway was given the job of writing the first issue mm-hmm. of Man-Thing. He was roommates with Len Wein, who wrote the first issue of Swamp Thing and co-created that character. <laughs> what? Len Wein insists, and both of them insist, that there was, there was no collusion. It was just like, you know that thing where the monkeys on disparate islands who don't communicate with each other start eating red berries at the same time? No, but go ahead. It's a thing that I half remember from an anthropology class I took like 20 years ago. Hmm. A better example might be, although there probably was collusion in this, how two Lombada movies came out within a month of each other in 1990. Lombada and The Forbidden Dance. That, I always thought that was the same movie. In fact, I always say Lombada, The Forbidden Dance is like a hyphenated thing. It might have been the subtitle of one of them. I think they were different movies, though. I might be wrong. Okay. I mean, Lombada was the forbidden dance. Certainly, it was forbidden in our household. Okay, okay, gotcha. Okay, so Man Swamp, Sings, Red Berries, Lombadas, got it. So, okay, 
here's the thing. Marvel at the time was pretty litigious, so it is a little bit weird that they never sued DC Comics for ripping off Swamp Thing. But I think that's probably because there's a good chance they were both ripping off somebody else. To complicate things further, Len Wein wrote the second appearance of Man-Thing. I think that was before Swamp Thing came out, but it was published after Swamp Thing came out. It's very confusing, and there's a lot about that that I don't understand. But let's get back to why Marvel didn't sue DC. Roy Thomas, when he and Stan Lee were workshopping the idea for Man-Thing, the origin story of which is a guy goes into the swamp to work on a secret scientific formula, bad guys try to kill him, he stumbles into the swamp and emerges a being of vengeance that is half man, half vegetation. Mm -hmm. It's pretty much the identical origin to Swamp Thing. Mm -hmm. It's also the identical origin to a character who showed up in 1942 called The Heap. <laughs> and The Heap was a character who is widely believed to be ripped off from the popular Theodore Sturgeon short story, which was published in 1940, what? called It, which had the exact same premise. I love this. Yeah. What's even weirder is <laughs> The Heap got brought back in a comic called Psycho Number 2, which was published in March 1971 by Skywald Publications, two months before the first appearance of Man-Thing. So in 1971, within a four or five month span, three different companies debuted or revived a character who was half vegetation because he was a scientist who went into a swap to work on a secret science formula. Man, I think you're onto something with that Red Berry theory. Like, what was in the zeitgeist in the early 70s that caused that sort of thing to happen? That's, that's really interesting. Well, what's even weirder is all of those creators that were involved in that also premiered Lombada comic books in the same month. Oh, that's not true. No, but it is odd, and it seems unlikely that it's entirely coincidental that they all look so similar and have such incredibly similar origins. Man-Thing definitely has a dick nose and a dick name, which sets him apart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't take him seriously, I think, on account of that. Yeah, and when Steve Gerber took over as the writer of Man-Thing, he really did go out of his way to try to disambiguate the character from Swamp Thing. Hmm. That's why Man-Thing doesn't have human intelligence and just reacts out of pure emotion to every situation. And it, it makes for an interesting, I'm not going to say character, but because he's almost a non-character, a difficult one to write, but one that I think does bring something genuinely different to the table outside of his power set than most main characters of comic books. Yeah, I guess my personal thing with it is because as a, a kid, I remember reading some of the Swamp Thing books and being little enough, I was like, whoa, <laughs> like this is so heavy. And it seemed like the serious character. Yeah. And then I got this guy with a thick nose and a, you know, just being a goof. Yeah. And I mean, the name Man Thing and then having a dick for a nose and then that a bunch of the comic books that he appeared in early were called Giant Size Man Thing. Oh, yeah, I had uh, more than one chuckle at, at that. Well, you aren't the only one. There was actually a notorious photo that Stan Lee posed for 
for, I think, one of the humor magazines that Marvel was putting out at the time, where he posed lying nude on a sofa with an issue of a comic book in front of his junk, and that comic book was an issue of Giant Size Man-Thing. Of course it was. I don't think it got published, but I might be wrong about that. The other weirdness that Man-Thing gets involved in in this issue, besides, you know, having a dick nose and a dick name, is being the guardian of the nexus of all realities. That is kind of what it sounds like, I guess. The swamp that he lives in in Citrusville is located at the focal point of a kind of multiverse where all of the universes are connected. That was a concept that Gerber introduced when he was writing Man-Thing, which kind of gave him an excuse to introduce characters who came from different sorts of genre fiction, including that is where Howard the Duck came from. He came through the portal in the nexus of all realities. And I think uh, Adventures into Fear number 19, it was, which was Man-Thing's title at the time. Damn, and that was all in Citrusville? Yep. Citrusville gets up to some weird shit. One of my favorite bad guys was from the Citrusville thing. It was the unsubtly named industrialist F.A. Schist. Wow. So to a certain extent, I think it's safe to say that uh, Steve Gerber went to the Ed Hannigan School of Subtle Name Choices. Mm. Mm-hmm. Or possibly the reverse, because Gerber was first. Mm. Speaking of name choices, we, I think, now have met all of the members of the Six-Fingered Hand for the first time. Mm-hmm. We now know all six demons' names. Mm-hmm. We've got Hippocrate, Avarish, Maya, Puishant, Unthink, who we meet this issue, and we also meet Maya this issue, mm-hmm. Fashima, mm-hmm. and uh, that's the six of them. Looking at the names together, I was so tempted to try to read some meaning into them. Were you? No. I mean, I just think really only two of them have old prospector sounding names but it's kind of disappointing isn't it i really thought they were going for something there at first yeah bummed me right out but uh i don't know out of the lot unthink just is the dumbest it is seems like it might be inspired by 1984 but that really never gets explored i tried so hard to come up with some meaning for them that i think i maybe came up with something I don't know if this is necessarily a clue as to the Six-Fingered Hand's sinister scheme, but I think it might be. If you take the first letter of each member of the Six-Fingered Hand and you rearrange the letters, you get Hampuff. Yeah? Yeah. So I think their evil scheme that they needed to kidnap the Hulk and Clea and the Silver Surfer for is that they planned to release a line of pork-flavored breakfast cereal. Ham puffs. Oh, man. You don't need to kidnap the Hulk and everybody to do that. Well, if you know a better way to market ham puffs, I'd like to hear it. So hire an ad agency. Well, okay, yeah, I guess that might work. I guess, actually, a ham puff might just be something you could call a pork rind. Mm. That's kind of a puffed-up piece of ham, right? Well, no, I mean, that's the skin and the fat a little bit. 
So it's not the ham, which is like the muscle meat of the pig. Yeah, but it's like a, it's a Schenectady thing, you know? Synecdoche? I mix those up. Which one's the city? I can't tell them apart either, but I think the first one that you said is a language thing. Okay. Yeah, it's one of those. It's a sign code. Yeah, it's a like same. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the art this issue? The copy that I had was a little worn, so I think some of it probably didn't come through as, you know, as well as it could have. But overall, I thought it was pretty fun. It was nice to see the Avengers. It was, it was you know, goofy. It was a goofy issue. And the art followed suit. Mm-hmm. There were definitely some very weird touches in the artwork that I appreciated, but overall, I thought it was really well executed and didn't suffer from the same too many cooks in the inking department issue that we've seen in previous issues. There were a few pages that were done by an uncredited inker. Pages 7 through 11 were done by Sal Trapini, but I didn't notice any real change in quality in those, and the style seemed to match up pretty well. And it really wasn't distracting. Overall, I think that they did a great job. Yeah. Yeah. Page seven is where we meet those stupid kids. Or I guess one kid is the stupid one and he like bullies the other kids into. Well, I mean, like any child that age in that era, he was swept up in his enthusiasm for the very popular character, Mandrake the Magician. (laughs) Little kids love Mandrake the Magician. Uh, yeah, one of these other instances, I think, of a writer being like, that's what kids like, right? When I was a kid, Mandrake was pretty big. Yeah, I was checking because Mandrake was actually fairly popular, like, for a very brief period of my youth. He showed up in a cartoon called Defenders of the Earth, where he teamed up with Flash Gordon and the Phantom. It did make me wonder, though, I think this is being very generous in my read of it, but it's possible that Mandrake the Magician is way more popular in the Marvel Universe than he is in our universe because superheroes maybe never took off in fiction form in the Marvel Universe in quite the same way, you know? Yeah. It's an idea that I think gets brought up a little bit in Watchmen where it's like, oh no, there are actual superheroes, so here pirate comics are really popular. I think it's possible that in the Marvel Universe, Mandrake the Magician is the hot shit that all the kids love that just never really died off. You know that drives Steve fucking nuts. (laughs) I am so much better. My mustache is more full, my cape is more Dracula-y. I guess that certainly explains what's going on on page two. He shows up and he's like, aren't I marvelous? It's the one where, like, Wong's on the phone and he's like, Steve's not here. Oh, wait, yeah, Steve's here. Oh, yeah, he teleports with a total ta-da pose. But you could be right. That could be more of a socket mandrake pose. You mentioned that it was fun to see the Avengers in this issue. I agree. And I got to give a little bit of credit to Steve here. We learned last issue that when shit went down with a six-fingered hand, he sent out calls to a bunch of mystical people. And Devil Slayer was the one who showed up. In this issue, we get confirmation that he just made some calls to the superhero community in general and was like, hey, if you see any six-fingered hand shit, give me a heads up. 
And that is what brings the Avengers into the fold in this issue. Mm -hmm. I agree. It was nice to see them. It didn't really seem all that necessary to include them, but I wasn't upset about it. I like this era of the Avengers. I like the team roster at this point. It seemed like there was maybe a weird miscue with the Beast in this issue, though. Hmm. You know when he says, these defenders are an intriguing bunch, especially that lady in the yellow suit. And then the caption says, even as the Beast ponders Patsy Walker's assets. So that makes it sound like he's checking out her ass, and that was what he meant by that. I mean, substituting the word assets for ass is pretty standard practice in writing sitcom-style double entendres. And I guess it's possible that that's what the Beast was doing? It's weird, though, because Patsy Walker was brought into the Marvel Universe proper essentially as being a side character in Beast's comic books. Like, they are old friends. She first showed up, well, she first showed up in the Marvel Universe as opposed to the kind of plucky, young, borderline comedy teen comics she had appeared in previously as a guest at the Fantastic Four's wedding, but that was just like a fun cameo where she and Millie the Model showed up. She was brought into the superhero side of things, really, in a comic book called Amazing Adventures, which was a solo series for Beast at the time. That was when he got his blue fur. And she kind of blackmailed him into making her an Avenger. And that's how she knows all of the Avengers. And she would have been very well acquainted with all of the Avengers from that era. So what Beast was saying, I think, would make sense if he's making a little joke to his friends like, oh, these people, they seem kind of familiar, especially that one in the yellow remember her like that that's like a fun joke he's making to his friends but then the caption work is like and he was looking at her butt hmm. it's weird because i can't quite wrap my mind around i think it might just be something the writer stumbled upon but it's like he didn't know what he was writing there you know mm -hmm. it's not often you see the omniscient narrator be the one who isn't in on the joke but that was the way i ended up reading that it was just kind of an odd miscue i thought yeah, interesting. I, I, I didn't know their history, so I just thought he was kind of checking her out. Yeah, it honestly was probably written that he was just checking her out, and maybe Dematis was new on the book and didn't realize that they were well acquainted. But his dialogue, I think, still works. The, uh, the caption work makes him seem more like Beast Boy than Beast, mm -hmm. which kind of annoyed me, but I was able to, you know, quasi- retcon my headcanon into liking Beast again. Speaking of the Teen Titans, the Defenders seem to adopt a very Teen Titans-esque strategy towards the end of the book, where they're like, This looks like a trap. Yeah, you know what? If the demons think we should go this way, I guess we're going this way. I couldn't quite figure out what their logic was there, and also that was the point where I don't know. I, I think most of the team kind of suffered a little bit in my eyes because they didn't notice for quite a while that Patsy wasn't with them. I would think before you walk into a strange portal with a unspoken agreement betwixt all of you that you'd maybe do a quick head count. And as they're drifting through this weird ether, they're all holding hands or, or joined in some way. 
and his Devil Slayer, who's like in the middle, <laughs> says, hey, where's Patsy? Yeah. I mean, he noticed that his cape was missing way first. Yep. As they are drifting in that panel, you said you had a slightly muddier copy of the title. Were you still able to pick up the details of what was going on in the background there? Man, it is fuzzy, but uh, these are some weird signifiers of weird for me. <laughs> like, okay, I'm going to run through what I think I see, and you tell me if that is what you see. Sounds good. So in the bottom, there's some spaceships and like a space castle. Mm-hmm. There is anthropomorphic Victorian era couple that have hippopotamus faces oh see i was thinking gorilla and i would say probably elizabethan more than victorian oh okay it's a weird choice of okay you know it's weird (laughs) humans and old-timey clothes with uh, like animal faces Mm -hmm. and then above that you get a barbarian battle that's between a little guy and a giant guy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's not so weird and then above that Above that, that's that's when shit gets really weird. Yeah. You got a naked man kind of on all fours, like squatting on a leash, being held by another man who's got like 1950s looking like slacks and shirt and a tie, but with the head of, I don't know, a chinchilla? Ah, uh, see, I was thinking hamster. I called him youth pastor hamster. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. then it's like a farmhouse or a church in the background or something. I thought it was a church and just, yeah, that combined with the, uh, what I think is a short-sleeved shirt with a tie (laughs) and the uh, hamster, possibly capybara head, and he's taking a naked dude out to shit on his lawn. And he does have that posture like that a human has when the dog's taken too long to poop. (laughs) It's like one hand's on his hip and he's not looking. (laughs) Yeah, no, that guy is definitely, he is taking him out to shit on the lawn. And then there's some planets and stuff. Yeah, some planets. It looks like there's maybe a Christmas tree ornament because that mm-hmm. uh, one red planet has the little, uh, oh, yeah. looks like the little thing to hang from the tree on yeah. top of it. Totally. Yeah. It's a weird dimension that that six fingered hand is beckoning them through. But it is odd to me that then they see a six fingered hand saying, You guys should go this way. And their response is, Hmm. We're fighting some demons who have almost certainly sent that hand. I guess we should probably go where they want us to. Yeah, maybe we'll see a guy shit on the lawn. (laughs) This I've got to see. And then it just, it gets even weirder from there where the six-fingered hand is just like ripped off at the wrist, kind of, with skin like dragging behind it. And it's like beckoning them and then pointing. Mm Mm-hmm. But it doesn't have the finger puppets on it anymore. And when we meet the demons of the six-fingered hand, I guess in their home dimension, they don't have to live as finger puppets, which was frankly a little bit disappointing to me. Yeah, it sure was. You mentioned Unthink before, and that he does have just kind of a weird name, perhaps Orwell-inspired. He also has a really weird character design, where it looked to me like maybe the result of trying to workshop Skeletor, but not being quite there yet. Because <laughs> they were like, all right, so, you know, we've, we, we want a really big, muscly guy who then just, like, I don't know, maybe 10% of him is just skeleton. What 10% should just be skeleton? Hmm. I mean, 
Head's the obvious choice. Let's start, though, with tummy. Yeah, or like just somebody didn't understand anatomy. They're like, <laughs> I want a guy with like a skeleton-like body, but arms and legs and a skeleton head. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, that's easy. Okay, I'm going to draw a big muscly guy and a, a stick. That's a spine, right? <laughs> yeah, It's like one of those like super impressive looking wasps that apparently don't sting as much as the other kind, but where it's just like, oh, did somebody squeeze him in the middle like a tube of toothpaste? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a weird look for Unthink. And yeah, just seeing all of the members of the six-fingered hand together at the end there made me realize what a little journey we've been on. We have now met all of the members, and uh, I gotta say, they look like a lot of them are kind of embarrassed by the new guy, Maya. Mm-hmm. who is, I believe, their leader. But uh, if you look especially at Puishant and Hippocri, they look like they're sitting so uncomfortably as he's giving his little speech. Yeah, nobody's making eye contact. They look like they're awkwardly listening to their racist uncle give a toast at a wedding. I don't think they like each other very much. Well, no, I mean, this is like they all had a job to do. <laughs> they all failed. Hmm. And Maya just sitting there talking like he runs the show, and they're like, fuck you, man, you didn't even try. Yeah, he's the only one who's undefeated, but it's also because he's the only one who hasn't fought yet. Mm-hmm. That, and I gotta believe, living on a hand together, tensions are gonna be pretty high. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, you see, the Hulk, Namor, Clea, and the Silver Surfer are stuck in little mystical snow globes there at the bottom. Sucks to be them. Indeed. We started to talk about this earlier before we got distracted by Mandrake chat, but, uh, weird little lizard man pops out of Patsy's cloak and kidnaps one of those kids. Mm Mm-hmm. I was so disappointed that it wasn't our old pal Snorfles the Orc Beast. Somebody's popping out of a shadow cloak. I want to see me some Snorfles. Oh, man. Yeah. That would have been charming. That said, I was really amused by, you know... Then the grotesque leering head, and he pops out and says, well, hello there. (laughs) That did make it, frankly, a lot more unsettling to me. That and the fact that he laughs his ass off when the kids run away from him. Mm -hmm. The other, I think, big thing that happens in this issue is Nighthawk quits the team. Indeed he does. It was weird to me, because when he shows up at the beginning of this issue, we are informed that As soon as David died in the last issue, his healing of Kyle was undone. Mm -hmm. That really didn't seem the direction they were headed with that. That seemed to be like a quick rewrite and change of direction. I didn't mind it that much, but it did make me go back and look at the previous issue. And in the last couple panels of it, Kyle is standing around and walking just fine. Even after uh, Messiah is dead? Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible that the Messiah, like, maybe he wasn't quite dead when everybody walked away from him and said, oh, it's a shame. So maybe they should have, you know, held a mirror up to his mouth first or something. Uh But I'm pretty sure that is a reversal of the original plan. But I gotta say, I don't hate it. I think now is a pretty damn good time for Kyle to take a little sabbatical, if for no other reason than... I don't want to keep mixing him up with Devil Slayer, and I really think I would have. Yeah, that's a fair point. And also, man, 
you got so many employees. Like, I know they don't report directly to you, but, like, you're, like, not giving a shit attitude about this giant corporation <laughs> you run. This is really irritating to me. Yeah, well, and he says he wants to pay more attention to it, which is great. It might just be lip service, but if nothing else, I like the lip service that he is paying in this issue. Mm -hmm. It also does make sense to me that he says, oh, I'm not going to give up being Nighthawk. It's just I can only work at night now. And so I think that makes more sense if I can make my own plans for myself based around that rather than try to be plugged into when you might need me at any moment. So. I'm going to take some time for myself. And I thought that was a good choice on his part. Yeah, I was I was really kind of proud of Kyle and feeling feeling the good feels. And then I saw he has a vanity plate on his limo that says Kyle won, which kind of <laughs> distracted me from liking him again. Yeah, that definitely undid some goodwill that I had built up in the couple of panels there as well. It's like, oh, of course he does. Jesus. <laughs> Well, is there anything else you want to get into before we get to the minutiae, or do you think everything else is going to come up there? I think everything else will come up there. Okay. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutiae? We got minutiae. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutiae. Like Cory eating farts, we got minutiae. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Cory, what do you feel like hitting up first? Let's get the uh, best and the worst out of the way. All right, it's highly unorthodox, but I'll allow it. Every issue of a Defender's comic book has a best defender and also a worst offender. In this issue, who did you have as your best defender? Man, this is a weird one. I actually went with Steve, because he basically sorted out the whole ploy of how to get out of the man-thing problem. Or mm -hmm. how to get unthink out of man thing by waking up a man thing's human thinking. And that was a pretty complicated little gambit that he had. And he also took risks. He zapped people around with his teleportation, mm -hmm. even though that could have screwed things up. And <laughs> despite him being at his devious when he showed up in his apartment, <laughs> ta da! <laughs> it's just, that, I don't know. It's like, it's kind of, in a way, like, it's there, he often walks that fine line between, like, you can't really say charming and egotistical in the same breath, but you know what I mean? Where it's like, oh, I do know what you mean, where it's just like, you know what? You just keep doing you, Steve. Yeah. I actually had Steve as my choice for the best defender as well. I had Kyle shortlisted for that. Hey, me too. But like you, the uh, the Kyle one personalized plate kind of put me off my Kyle for a minute. So I went with Steve not only for the reasons that you cite, but also for being a good communicator with the rest of the superhero universe, which is incredibly rare in comic books and I think should be rewarded. Yeah, and rare for Steve too, right? Like he called oh, totally. everybody. He didn't even make Wong do it ostensibly. <laughs> I know. And this is a guy who historically will not turn to the people that he is going on a four hour flight with and telling them where they are headed. Mm -hmm. Instead being like, you'll be surprised when we get there. And then they fly for four hours there. Yeah. So, so yeah, no, I had him as my best defender as well. Conversely, who did you have as your worst offender? And this is a real toss up because there was a lot of people that were just kind of ineffective in the issue mm -hmm. 
for example, Val, like she attacked hard, but she didn't really accomplish anything. But she gave that nice, like, hey, we're a family speech. So she's cool. Mm-hmm. So then it's kind of down to Devil Slayer and uh, Gargoyle, who both, you know, they were brave and they attacked the man thing. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I guess I'm gonna I'm gonna go with Devil Slayer just on account of his. I mean, I know he's got a dark soul and his dad's a devil. Blah blah blah. But... Oh, see, that's not Devil Slayer, Corey. I'm not Devil Slayer. Sorry, um, that's uh, Son of Satan. But uh, no, I had Devil Slayer as my worst because he just bugs me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, Son of Satan. I appreciated that he was able to keep his dark soul in check when uh, Patsy was goading him. Mm-hmm. Um, that. Sure didn't look easy for him. I had Patsy as a potential choice for leaving her shadow cloak lying around in a pile of rubble. But at the same time, I couldn't really fault her too much for that. I mean, her house that got destroyed by the gargoyle is a source of great trauma for her right now, given that it was her mom's house and her mom tried to sell her soul to the devil. Well, plus her her wiring's all wackadoodle on account of some great evil being inside her that Steve hasn't told her about yet. Yeah, I couldn't give it to her for that. I think being possessed by a demon is a pretty decent get-out-of-jail-free card. I had Beast as an option for looking at Patsy's ass and ogling her, but I don't think that was what was actually going on. I had Clea as an option for pulling the whole, uh, Oh, I don't hear anything. <laughs> if I ignore the phone long enough, someone else will answer it. Uh, but she does get kidnapped by the six-fingered hand, probably. I'm not entirely convinced that Patsy's mom didn't just sell all of those people's souls to the six-fingered hand as well, because I guess that's just something you can do, is sell other people's souls. Man, we're in the wrong business. I know. Fuck it, I guess I'll go Devil Slayer too. <laughs> I think he must have done a pretty bad job talking to his ex-wife, Corey, that she decided she would rather literally wander around in the desert than come home with him. And he's all, like, salty about it and mad at her. Yeah, I hate to say it, but I'm getting some pretty strong Jack Norris vibes off this guy. Yep. I mean, nondescript, brown-haired, sad sack, white guy who's possessive about his ex-wife. He's not quite full volume. Where's my wife? He's getting there, man. He's getting there. Yeah. All right. Wow. We have an accord. One best for Steve, one worst for Devil Slayer. Indeed. Now, Corey, you mentioned before that you think we're in the wrong business. I have a potential different business we might want to get into for this next category. Oh, yeah? Behold! Or be gone. Cosmic offsets. Son of Satan mentions to Steve that all of his teleporting around is causing some pretty gnarly shifts in the subtle plane. And Steve responds that, yeah, I know I might be fucking with reality pretty hard with all of this teleportation, but it's something that I really need to do for my business. That business being demon fighting. Now, much like there are carbon offsets <laughs> that dumb rich people buy when they're like, oh, I feel bad that I'm ruining the planet, so I'll pay someone else to not ruin it in the same amount that I'm ruining it. I feel like we could go into business selling cosmic offsets to some of these super types. Like, 
you guys do as much of your magic bullshit and tear the fabric of the continuity as much as you can. And to counterbalance that, I'll stay at home and do something very boring. And then you won't feel guilty. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. And we'll get a bunch of people to come along with us on our boring adventure. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, or, you know, we'll, we can, like, we can subcontract our mon- mundanity to others as well, if the business grows that much. Now, the reason this is even a question is, it's a kind of fucked up thing to do. Like carbon offsets doesn't actually do shit except for make rich people feel better about themselves. But they're going to do all that teleporting anyway. Might as well make a buck off of it. Uh, so uh, cosmic offsets. Behold or be gone, Corey? No, man, it's a behold. They're going to do that stuff anyway. You know, wizard's going to (laughs) teleport. Polluter's going to pollute. Yeah, there's no such thing as ethical, magical consumption under superheroics. Well, like the the carbon offset thing, too, like this, I mean, the concept behind it's not ludicrous, right? Like people trying to make lots of money don't want to pay extra money. So, you know, we'll... That's the disincentive, right? It's like, if you do this shit, you get to pay more. And they're like, okay, I don't want to pay more. I won't do this shit. You know, does it work? Probably not. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) All right. Well, that's one behold. You know what? I think I'm going to give it a behold, too. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Do we actually have to do something to offset (laughs) the dimension shifting with the dollars we get? It's just our mundane life, right? I think we have to work really hard at not doing anything magical. So, I mean, I probably wasn't going to anyway, but I definitely won't if I get paid. I think maybe to be on the safe side, you should do something extra boring. Uh, So what's your pitch? What's your cosmic offset? What's the least magical thing that you're willing to do for money? Oh, man, I'm going to clean the fuck out of this house. (laughs) It needs it. I am going to do some collating. I actually really like collating. I'll uh, maybe orga- reorganize my bookshelf. Mm. Um, maybe have a documentary about the history of volleyball on in the background. You know, just uh, have a boring time at home and really earn that cosmic offset money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could, I could be so boring if I got paid. I mean, I've been in training for years for this. Yeah, no, I feel like it's a skill set for sure. All right. Well, uh, sounds like it's two beholds and a possible career opportunity. All right. So if you're a dimension shifting wizard, (laughs) hit us up. Yeah, we'll come up with a PSA for it. Something like, Daddy, what was reality? (laughs) I know there's not much of it left these days, but reality used to be all over the place. We thought it would last forever. Really? I'm afraid so, floating rainbow cheeseburger wearing a stovepipe hat. Corey, it's time yet again for a battle of the band names! Now, without doing any research on the matter, I feel confident stating that at this point, the writhing obscenities are probably our longest-running champions. They once again defeated their challenger. This time it was a little bit closer, the calculus rock band Momentar. 
made it interesting at least, but once again, the writhing obscenities came out on top. In this issue, were you able to find a band name that you feel comfortable putting up as a challenger to the writhing obscenities? Hmm. I feel comfortable, but I don't feel necessarily that, that these are, are really strong contenders, because that, that was a heck of a name. It really was. I've got three possibilities. There's ones that I like better than others. There's unfortunately one that I like the explanation of the band better than the name. Uh, why don't you start us off with something? All right, I got, I got three also. Okay. The two later ones are kind of more of a like a bummer subject matter wise of their music. So I'm going to start with the, the cheerful one, which is okay. big acoustic old timey music band called Welcome to Citrusville. Yeah, I like that. So you're seeing them as like a swing revival revival? Oh, I have seen that on the internet. I, d- I didn't think of it like that. No, I meant more like a bluegrassy kind of a oh old timey like guitars and fiddles and stuff band. Maybe some banjos in there. Oh, sure. Why not? Stand up bass. I can see that being pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and maybe they do just play old uh, swing classics. You're Benny Goodman, you're Artie Shaw, Sidney Bechet. But bluegrass covers of them? Mm-hmm. That'd be pretty fun. Yeah, why not? I think that's a pretty good one. I had the subtle planes being mm. one. It's a phrase that Steve uses to describe basically why he needs to subscribe to our Cosmic Offsets program. And I think that the Subtle Planes, and it's P-L-A-N-E-S, are probably a band that does music inspired by the 2005 film Stealth about a stealth bomber. (laughs) What would that sound like? Very quiet. Oh, okay. You really have to turn the album all the way up to hear the song. But when you do, it's not bad. Gosh, I was thinking it would just sound like, um, how do you pronounce it? Is it Moog, those keyboards? Ah, uh, you know, I always said Moog, but I'm probably wrong. I think it is Moog. I think there's a band by that name that uses them that has a lot of that 80s kind of deep synthesizer sound. I imagine. Uh, there's a band called the Moog Cookbook, I believe it was. Hmm. I think it's pronounced Farfisa. <laughs> okay. What was your next one? Uh, my next one is kind of like the, the dankness of the vault was like, a, you know, kind of stony sludgecore sort of group called This Murkish Shell. Ooh, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. They're pretty dour, though, you know, very like gothy in their lyricism and sludgy in their music. Kind of like the more downbeat Nine Inch Nails stuff. Mm-hmm. I had a, along similar lines, I think it might be a similar type of music, Truculent Melee. <laughs> what? Truculent Melee. What? Do, I don't know. Like, what does the first word mean? I always thought it meant stubborn, and I haven't looked it up. So uh, I'm going to say stubborn. God damn it. Now I'm going to look it up. <laughs> That's a cool sounding word. Yeah, no, truculent is fun. It's like a succulent, like a jade plant, but like a truck. It is also entirely possible that I am pronouncing that all kinds of wrong. That's a good thing we have the uh, those phonetic uh, pronunciation guides on the internet. Those don't make a lick of sense. Yeah, I am not privy to their secret code. I always look at those and I'm like, oh, so I'm supposed to say that with an upside down E with a dot over it. Well, that clears everything up. Okay, so stubborn's part of it. Truculent is uh, 
eager or quick to argue or fight, aggressively defiant. Mm. So yeah, truculent melee. I think that's a pretty decent name. Mm-hmm. I actually like my last one, I think, a little bit better. And I think specifically it might play better to our audience. Uh, the Gods of Science. Ooh, yeah, I almost had that one. That's a good one. What was We had another science one that did pretty well for a few weeks there, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was Canadians, right? Yeah, the Province of Science. So if the Province of Science did good... Just imagine how well the gods of science will do. Mm, and I think good. they're kind of like, you know, just kind of a bombastic indie rock. <laughs> okay. What's your final choice? Yeah, my final choice is just this good old metal band called Satan's Hooves with an exclamation point. Satan's Who's? Hooves, like cloven feet. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody likes an ungulate. I think, though, as much as I do like Satan's hooves, I'm going to cast my vote for uh, the gods of science. Okay. So the writhing obscenities versus the gods of science. That actually sounds like a pretty damn good fight. I would go see that show. Oh, hell yeah. So, uh, yeah, gods of science it is. What was your favorite sound effect in this issue? My favorite was on page 13, and it was a two-parter, and it was the bunk clunk. (laughs) I liked the bunk clunk, too. Specifically, I like that the bunk noise was attached to an attack on Gargoyle. It made me think that it was maybe custom-made for him, because as an old man, he would probably use a word like bunk. (laughs) Maybe so. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one also. I had Bunk as a possibility. I think I slightly preferred one that preceded that, which is a noise that a different Man-Thing attack made, the noise Shloom. Mm. I thought Shloom just sounded like a very swampy type of attack noise, and Mm. I appreciated the uh, commitment to a motif. Yeah, it's a nice uh, wet sound. Mm Mm-hmm. There's less to talk about in this category than I feel like there often is, but sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion did you most want to comment upon? Yeah, I had a couple. So, Kyle's nurse Mm -hmm. is dressed like a young to middle-aged Queen of England? Huh. Am I wrong about that? I'd, I'd only, like the still photos of the preview of the shows about that stuff on Netflix to go on. But I haven't seen that. I think the haircut and the hat are doing a lot of the heavy lifting and that she's just in the one panel, right? Yeah. As she is uh, wheeling him to the Kyle one. Yeah, I can see that. The details are a little hazy in that panel, but her posture, her haircut and her hat do kind of seem like a younger queen of England. I can see that. Totally see Kyle being like, okay, I'm going to need you to wear this and to talk in a a stern British accent. I'll pay you well. Yeah, I can see that being his thing. Now you have to call me a naughty corgi the whole time. (laughs) Other fashion, uh, we have our old pal Unthink the Demon, who when he is bopping around in Man-Thing's mind, is wearing a familiar looking garment that I don't think I've ever seen outside of a comic book. It is 
the peekaboo crotch curtain. He has a, a little uh, <laughs> a little know? curtain draped around his waist on a belt. What makes it peekaboo though? Um, just that it's uh, it's just that little curtain in front of his junk, like that you could easily peek to one side for a little puppet show. <laughs> okay. Remember, we've seen it on Trigon. It's a very popular comic book garment, the uh, the peekaboo crotch curtain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's fun, it's flirty, but it's not particularly practical. It's not overtly offensive. Not yet. <laughs> not until that puppet show. <laughs> Let's see what else. I had, uh, I wasn't actually really familiar with Wonder Man, but I like his, is it a red leather, like almost Michael Jackson style jacket and shades like plastic sunglasses with red plastic mm-hmm. this is i think my favorite outfit for wonder man it's the one that i'm most familiar with i think it's his 80s and maybe early 90s outfit but it's a good one it's a i'd say about knee length like mini trench coat with sunglasses sometimes it looks like he's wearing an ascot with it but not always but it's a good look I think it's probably worth mentioning. I don't know if this technically counts as a fashion choice, but it is a choice that was made. Ted Salas, when he is inside of his own brain, why do you think he decided to show up naked? I mean, Steve's not naked when he's inside his brain. Presumably, he could appear however he would like to. It's his avatar for himself. He's not in the bestial form that he would be if he was representing Man-Thing and not Ted Salas. Do you think he thought that would just bring a little extra intimidation to his attack on Unthink? Maybe, or maybe that's they were just trying to represent like that was his like purest self. I guess. Or maybe Steve just summoned him that way to freak Unthink out? Maybe. Peekaboo crotch curtain. Try no curtain, motherfucker. Time for a little look behind the curtain. <laughs> Try this puppet show. I mean, there's a reason they call him Man Thing. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably it's probably one of those things. Mm-hmm. What was your pie not made out of steel? This issue. What words did you like best? Much like you would like a pie if it were not made out of steel. I had a couple. One of them actually is where you got your band name from on page sixteen. Salas says, I sold my soul, then, unthink, to the gods of science, to the devils of government. Mm. Mm. Telling. Mm. I like that one a lot. I also like Steve relating what happened inside Ted's mind to the rest of the group in a not particularly helpful way. He says, More than emptiness resides within the man-thing, Valkyrie. For his spirit secrets a being of great courage, yet no courage at all. And Carcoyle says, Hey, I don't get it, Doctor. And Steve's response is, Nor do I, Isaac. But come, there are more pressing matters to attend to. I love I love that response actually like it reminded me of like like if you're explaining something to a kid and they ask you a hard question, you just be like, Nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. I like it even better than that, though, because it's like if somebody says, what did you mean by that? I don't know what I meant by that. 
But he says it in a way that makes it sound like he's trying to say something profound by saying that he doesn't understand what he was just saying. And uh, I, I just really like that. It's like, yes, my words are indeed a puzzle. One I myself am unable to solve. They're that deep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I had the same take on that, that exchange, and it amused me as well. The other choice that I had is, I think, a little bit more straightforward. It just kind of cracked me up. It is when Patsy is in full evil mode, and she is trying to goad Son of Satan into attacking her for some reason. Uh, she scratches him on the face, and he gets super pissed, and then decides not to hit her. And her response is, Satan's little boy is a wimp! I know, she's being such a jerk. It really cracked me up. I like calling him Satan's little boy. Nice choice. Yeah, that cracked me up too. My backup was really kind of mundane, but, you know, I gotta I gotta pay my uh, offset, so. <laughs> it was the beginning of the comic, and what I liked is how it sets it up as this, like, really kind of normal thing, and then everything goes so weird after it. It's the introduction. A crisp, clear New York City morning. Everywhere alarm clocks are buzzing, beeping, and clanging. As millions of people wipe sleep from their eyes and begin the days rushing and racing without the time to pause or ponder. Mm. Like, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. People got shit to do. People that aren't Wong and Clea, anyway. Because they're just hanging out meditating. Or Wong until the phone rings and Clea pretends not to hear it. <laughs> exactly. What was your favorite panel? So my favorite panel is one that I touched on before, and it's on page two. It's the opening panel where the defenders, powered by Steve, pop back into their apartment into the sanctum sanctimonious by his uh teleportation and i called it aren't i grand because <laughs> he just looks like he's really showing off i mm-hmm. love that but i also love wong's expression who is just not fucking feeling it you <laughs> see he's looking he's rolling his eyes so hard he can't see he's nothing but sclera yeah he's very much like yep phone for you uh-huh I like that one a lot. I also really like, there's one on page five, which honestly, page five in general is just laid out in a really interesting way. There's a lot of like panels inset into other panels, but there is a close-up of Son of Satan and his gesticulation is busting out of the panel borders. And I just really like that. That's how whenever I say we must depart for Florida immediately, I look. I don't think there's a way to say it without screaming. <laughs> I also really love, I think it's really wonderfully done, the page preceding that, page four. Mm-hmm. It is a full page spread of the Avengers flying over the chasm shaped like a six-fingered hand. It's just a really cool perspective shot. Yeah, it is amazing. I, I don't know how they, well, I guess you get a lot of practice as a comic artist, but the perspective, like you said, is amazing. It's interesting because it's as if you're in the airplane and the airplane is turning. Mm -hmm. So everything is kind of askew, both sideways, but also like really foreshortened. It's a must have been a real bear to uh, to draw. Yeah. And the detail on the plane in that is just great. Also, Mm -hmm. I liked that one a lot. We already talked at length about the one where the capybara youth pastor is taking his human out to shit on his lawn. Just that part of that panel combined with the, I think, Elizabethan gorilla people that are on a glass surface in front of a shifferobe. 
there's just so much going on there. There's a lot of really great group shots in this issue. The art is just really nicely done. It's a shame that you have a muddier copy because it's pretty crisp art in mine. I think... <sighs> so there's a bunch of really impressive panels and then there's a couple of panels that just crack me up. The ones that I think cracked me up the most, not surprisingly, both relate to Man-Thing. One is on page number 11, when Man-Thing first shows up. It is a beautifully drawn picture of him. He looks less goofy than he normally does, because when the demons took him over, they made him grow three horns out of his head, which detracts from the overall dickish nature of his nose and face. On the other hand, what doesn't detract from that is Steve staring up at his crotch and saying, The man thing! <laughs> yep. It's just Steve's perspective on that, coupled with what he's saying, really cracked me up. And then later on, on page 18, when man thing has the demonness poked out of him and he's just wandering off, looks like he's got a pot leaf for a butthole. Yeah, I noticed that too, and I... Uh had that thought of like our butt cracks i guess they're in the same boat as nipples due to the comics code so it was like a fig leaf effect maybe don perlin had just read kurt vonnegut's breakfast of champions where he's got that thing about drawing asterisks and saying people's buttholes look like this uh-huh. and he's like well man thing he's a made out of vegetables I don't know why in that I just made Don Perlin Italian. Hey! <laughs> in this thing, uh, the Swamp Thing, he's uh, made out of a vegetable, so he's probably got an apartment for the butthole. <laughs> I think that's probably how it went down. Okay. Mamma mia. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what are the Hulk's rules? Hmm. So in this one, I had a runner-up, but I'm going to go with the main one to start, which is not a popular opinion, certainly not in this day and age, but it really gave the Hulk pause, and that was a, a lesson that he took from the Man-Thing slash Ted Salas, which is, you know, if the odds of failure are really high and the disappointment associated with that failure is going to be so great you fear it will crush you, it's okay not to try. Choosing oblivion is fine. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, Hulk's sitting in the forest somewhere with his chin in his fist, just staring off into space thinking about that. You think that's where the demons found him? Yeah, probably. Deep in thought. Mm. I gotta say, it doesn't seem like a particularly Hulk-like approach to things. Normally, I think the Hulk is fairly truculent, Corey. He is when faced with the immediacy of a situation, but at the same time, we've seen on numerous occasions, he is just fucking fed up with the whole thing and takes Ooh. off to go be alone. All right. And uh, my runner up is, damn it, Ricky, listen to your damn mom. Not that else, old Cliffy. Yeah, Cliffy's a real piece of shit. He got his. <laughs> as far as we know. That's true. We don't know where Cliffy is. Maybe he's been teleported to Mandrake's realm, and he's happy as a clam, hanging out with Mandrake and Lothar. I had the Hulk learning a different rule. I had the Hulk's rule being, don't play Chores Chicken. Hmm. Now, Chores Chicken is the game that a lot of people end up playing when they're in a co-living situation, where, say, the dishes need to be done. 
and you feel like you're the one who does the dishes all the time. So you'll pretend you don't notice that there are dishes that need to be done, and just wait for the other person to do it. You see Clea playing chores chicken with the phone answering situation, and it works out for her in the short term, in that Wong goes and gets the phone, but in general, the way the chores chicken is going to play out is you're going to just do the chore later when you're angrier about doing it and you'll resent it more. Because usually it's a game that you don't realize you're the only person playing. It'll be worse, too. Yeah, in Clea's case, it probably led to her getting kidnapped by demons. So the Hulk's rule is don't play chores chicken. You'll just get kidnapped by demons. And that's the Hulk's rule. Well, Corey, I have just one further question I must ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1981, and the month of our Lord, August, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Mm. So we know Wong, among many other things, is a, is a big music fan and uh, likes music, likes to listen to it, likes to kind of talk about it, hang out with musicians. And um, over the years, he's, he's made a bunch of friends some higher profile than others in the music business. So the time frame we're talking about is August 1981, but a couple of years ago, 79, Wong was hanging out with some English friends, bassist Trevor Horn and keyboard player Jeff Downs. Real late night, heavy, heavy Jamaican incense session, talking into the wee hours of the morning about philosophy, life, music, media, that sort of thing. And deep into the session, just stoned out of his gourd, Wong posited that the uh, the medium of video would kill everything else. It's mm. gonna it's gonna kill rock on the radio. It's gonna, people just gonna be obsessed. You know, everything's so goddamn plastic, and you know, kind of took a dark turn. Uh, Trevor and Jeff were like, "Whoa, whoa, <laughs> take it easy, buddy." But it gave them an idea that wound up being really fortuitous for them. So a couple years later, January. 1980, they released their band's album. Their band was uh, The Buggles, called Age of Plastic, which had the uh, the hit song Video Killed the Radio Star as the lead single, which Wong, you know, had never heard until, again, having a real late-night Jamaican incense session on August 1st of 1981, was watching uh, his words basically come to fruition as uh, MTV debuted, and on heavy rotation is the first song they played, and video was Video Killed the Radio Star by The Buggles. Yeah, the very first music video played on MTV. Mm-hmm. Followed by uh, Pat Benatar's You Better Run, and just kind of went on like that for a while, but yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring up Wong watching MTV, that stoned morning of August 1st, because it does figure significantly into his later adventures that month. Mm. See, he started watching that, and Steve happened to be walking by while Wong was watching MTV, and heard that song and thought, mm, Video killed the radio star. Wong, are these music televisions responsible for the death of Edgar Bergen in 1978? And Wong was like, no, he, he, he was a, an older man who died of natural causes, Steve. We've been over this. <laughs> mm. You're sure I shouldn't just call my good friends Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd to try to puzzle this out? And, and Wong had to be like, Steve, those are ventriloquist dummies. 
And even if they weren't, you don't know them. Steve's like, hmm, you raise a point. Now, what's this MTV that apparently you claim is innocent of murder? And so he sat down and watched MTV with Wong for really the better part of that day. One unfortunate byproduct of that is that the artist in most heavy rotation in the first few days of MTV was Rod Stewart. <laughs> and Steve just kept singing Rod Stewart songs all around the sanctum. All month long. If you like my body and you think I'm sexy, Wong, do you think I'm sexy? And eventually Wong just could not take that oh, shit anymore. No. And he decided he needed to get as far away from the sanctum as possible. Now, fortunately, Wong had some friends that lived pretty darn far from the sanctum. As it happened, his society, which I believe has come up before, the Handsome Bald Person Society, which had such illustrious members as Dr. Charles Xavier, was having their meeting at another member of that society's house, Moon Dragon, on the moon of Saturn, Titan. Nice. So Wong teleported himself and Dr. Xavier there. They and Moon Dragon hung out. They had a good time. And they decided, you know what? I wish we could have some pictures taken of this event. It's just, it's so nice that we're all together. The only problem was both Professor X and Wong had forgotten their cameras on Earth. So Moon Dragon used her significant psychic powers to pull the Voyager 2 closer to the moon of Saturn. And for the first time ever, the Voyager 2 took pictures of the moons of Saturn so that Wong and Professor X and Moon Dragon could get a nice group shot. And yes. that is the Wong doings that Wong was doing in August of 1981. Nice. Corey, thank you so much for joining us. I had a great time talking about this comic book with you. You're welcome. I had fun as well. Glad to hear it. We'll be back next week to see how Danny Chase is fitting in with the Teen Titans. And we'll be back in two weeks for, I believe, the conclusion of the Six-Fingered Hand Saga. So, some exciting stuff coming up. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so by writing to us at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can also be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. Speaking of this far-flung future that we live in, there's also a thing now called the socials media. And wouldn't you know it, I think we're up on there somewhere too. Just, you know, poke around on there and see where we are. We're not hiding. You don't need a shadow cloak to get there. Just uh, spell our name right, and you can summon us. We'll appear behind you in the mirror and won't murder you. That's the tighten up the defense guarantee. We will not murder you, and we will offset your cosmic off. Wait, we will offset your cosmic ness. Um, it's just cosmic offsets, right? Yeah, we're gonna sell cosmic offsets, but uh, uh, tough to put that in a non-passive form. We will offset your cosmics, guaranteed. Five stars. <laughs> oh wow, that was concise. Yeah, and hey, if you can't find us there, there's another place you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. 
I'll be doing some collating. Still dusting. Why? Well, I, I don't think you, you need to dust their heart. I think it's uh, pretty tidy in there already. <laughs> Sucker. Oh, man, you're just going to take that cosmic offset money and pocket it. I'm relaxed. Nice. Well, as long as you don't do any magic, we've earned our money. Yep. I don't know if I can keep that promise, because you know what? The Mm. magic of friendship is the most powerful magic of all. Ooh, except necromancy. Mm -hmm. Mm. I think we still get to get the cosmic offset money if we're friends. I hope so. Me too. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. There's a whole bunch of stuff up there. I just made a video about the Taskmaster's first appearance in Avengers 196, and there should be a new episode of What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show coming up pretty soon. We're a little bit behind schedule on that, but that is the monthly podcast about Howard the Duck that I co-host with my wife, Lisa. Those are just some of the things that you can enjoy if you check us out on patreon.com slash ttwasteland. There is a whole bunch of stuff up there that is exclusively available to our patrons. Thank you very much for everyone who has been supporting us there. It has been a lifesaver. It has really kept me afloat for the last year or so. Thanks. If you would like to help support the show in a non-financial way, Corey, what's a way people could do that? You can uh, tell a friend about the show. Spread the word. Tell somebody you think might like the show. Heck, you could tell anybody. Even people you think might not like the show. That's fine. But uh, telling people and leaving a review. Those are two great things that you could do. Can you tell the late Edgar Bergen's ventriloquist dummies, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd? Um... You know, I wouldn't really just personally recommend that because ventriloquist dummies creep me out and I Mm. wouldn't really want to advise any listeners to get near them just on account of my feelings about them. But hey, you know, what the heck? If you can find them and you're you're cool with that, go for it. Somebody will probably overhear. Good call. Or you could just leave us a review on iTunes or uh, wherever you find your podcast. A nice review you could leave is... uh... I thought this was about football, but I liked it anyway. Five stars. Ooh, good one. Thanks. It's just that simple. Anyway, we'll be back soon. And until then, shloom! Damn it, Ricky. Fucking Ricky. (laughs) I apologize if there are any Rickies out there that are listening, but that's just not a name you can trust. Ricky is the kid... That got scared, the blonde kid. It was Cliffy as the little shit. I'm just mad at Ricky for not listening to his mom. Oh. Sorry, you want me to do that again? (laughs) No, it's fine. I still don't trust Ricky's. Well, that's (laughs) because your personal history with little Ricky. That is true. Yeah, a kid named little Ricky bullied me when I was younger. I like Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Mm -hmm. And I like the movie The Story of Ricky O. Mm Hmm? But I don't know if I would trust Ricky O. He might tear out my intestines and jump rope with them or something. He's a heck of a puncher. He, yeah, he might punch my fist off. Mm-hmm. All right, bye. Bye. <laughs> and they know it.
Daddy, what was reality? Uh, seems like there used to be a lot more of it, didn't there, purple starfish dragonfly? Probably shouldn't have started with purple no. starfish. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I was going to let you go with that, too. <laughs> You're a good brother. Um, 